0: Okay, we're back to our King series, and this morning we have the treat of Heather Kamira. Let's welcome Heather. Hey. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, So give me a second here. I'm going to actually uh, do something I did last night, which I felt like the Lord wanted me to do. I'm just gonna actually going to look at you guys for a second. Oh, there's so many people here. This is great. Because this is not about me. This is about the Lord and what he wants to say to you guys today. And I just want to not just run off to the races and start my, my talk today, but I just wanna feel like I'm present with you. So give me a second, I'm just gonna just awkwardly look at you guys. You're like, hi, hey, okay, yeah. Hi, I see you guys, yeah, this is good. You're not just a blur anywhere, yeah, uh-huh, okay. I love the people waving, that's awesome, I guess. Okay, good. I feel like I see you this, this way, okay. Well, anyone here, I'm, I'm assuming we all, know what a selfie is, yeah, selfies, okay, yeah, pretty commonplace now, not only are we seeing them online everywhere, but we're also uh, seeing people in stores, (laughs) I see people in stores, you know, their phone up and looking at their phone, and you're like, oh, they're taking a selfie, Uh, it's pretty commonplace now, Um, Adam and I actually have this thing called a selfie stick. Have you heard of those? Really practical. You don't even have to ask anybody to take your picture anymore. You can do it yourself. Have the stick that pulls out and uh, take your own picture. It's pretty cool. And not that selfies are a bad thing. I want to say that it's not an inherently bad thing to to take a selfie or to have selfies. But we are becoming an increasingly selfie-obsessed culture. And have you noticed at all, we've become selfie-obsessed. And I was doing some research, and I found out this statistic. Are you ready for this? Okay, 90 million selfies are taken every day. Okay, 90 million. Now, if you have a teenager at home, I'm sure you're thinking, ah, you know, that, that's pretty close. Um, but it's, it's still a lot, right? It's still a lot. And Google, last year alone, said that 24 billion billion selfies were uploaded to their site, 24 billion selfies. And what's interesting is there's this whole category called selfies gone wrong that I didn't even know about, where people are not only posting on Facebook, but actually taking pictures of themselves, stealing something in a store. And then, knock, knock, the police come calling. And then there's people who say, you know what, I can't be at work for whatever reason, health-related issue. And then they take a picture of themselves at a bar, you know, having a party or having a good time. And their boss is like, yeah, I'd like to see you in the morning. Um, So selfies gone wrong. But there's also this tragic number of deaths by selfie. And I'm not kidding you. Deaths by selfie. And they said statistically that in the last two years, there's actually been around 50 deaths of people trying to get that perfect selfie. Deaths. So if that's true, if that's statistically true, then deaths by selfie is actually more common than deaths by shark. Okay that's the world we live in. This is the world we live in now and and all kinds of problems can occur, right? When we start to put the focus on ourselves, right? And when our hearts become focused on ourselves and what we have, right? We start to forget who actually gave those things to us in the first place, right? We want to spend time today looking at this, not just because it's an epidemic in our culture or that that's just something that's really relevant for today, but it's also important because it's so easy to be unaware. It's really easy to be unaware of what's going on in our hearts, what's gotten attached to our hearts. Jeremiah 17:9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? that's not a verse you read a lot (laughs) your heart is deceitful don't think you understand it right but our hearts are really hard to understand they're really hard to detect what's going on and and I think that's why it's so important to get those heart checkups once in a while right we get we get our hearts checked you know for our health reasons but do we check our hearts for spiritual reasons and and I, I don't know that I really ever do this but you know when I meet a person I'm like hi you know I'm Heather nice to meet you and how's your heart like, I don't say that, that's weird, you know, it's just strange, but more it's like, you know, how you doing or how you feeling or, or how's, how's your day going kind of thing. But God is asking us on a daily basis, uh, how's your heart? How's your heart? Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Yeah, that, that's, that means it's pretty important, right? And it charts the course of our lives. That's why we have to guard it. And and we guard it because our hearts can so easily become attached to things other than God, right? So easily attached to other things. And what's that called? That's called idolatry. Now, that's another word we don't use a lot, idolatry. But those, those are those empty wells, right, that Danny talks about in the Gospel of Wholeness, the, the empty wells that we're trying to, to get life from that never actually satisfy, they always come up empty. And the challenge is to not let the things that God's given us, usually, usually, good things. When we think of idolatry, we usually think of bad things, but idolatry is actually the good things, okay? It's usually good things that become our focus and take hold of our hearts. Matthew 6, 21 says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what's our focus? What's our treasure? What in our lives do we actually forget is a gift from God? <laughs> because what, what happens is we start to rely on those gifts more and more. We get life and meaning and security and hope out of those things, right? And we start to actually forget not only that it's a gift, but we think that somehow it's in our control that we deserve or are entitled to these things that we have. And simply for the fact that we have it, we think we own it, right? Well, that's mine. That's mine. Uh, a funny story. Um, shortly after the Super Bowl weekend this year, Fortune magazine ran an article about Robert Kraft. Anybody know who Robert Kraft is? Okay, I'm hearing something. So the owner of the New England Patriots, And in 2005, uh, he went to the Kremlin, of all places, with other businessmen to meet with Vladimir Putin. Kraft, knowing that Putin was an avid sports fan, decided to show him his most recent Super Bowl ring. And there's pictures of actually Putin online, Putin looking at his ring and even trying it on, you know, and, oh, isn't this cool? And when Kraft held his hand out to take it back again, Putin, surrounded by all his, you know, Russian agents, (laughs) slips the ring in his pocket and walks away. And Kraft is like, uh, (laughs) and what happens is in the interest of US and Russian relations, the White House actually says, you know, Kraft, it would actually be nice and in the best best interest of all parties involved, if you just meant to give that, that ring as a present, let's just pretend it was a present, okay? And I don't know what kind of misunderstanding or what kind of audacity you have to have to to be like, you know what, this ring with Robert Kraft's name on it, by the way, um, this ring, I like this ring. This ring's pretty cool. This is nice. I think I'm going to slip that in my pocket and walk away. I don't know what kind of audacity it takes to do that, but we do this all the time, right, with God. We do this all the time. We we go, you know what, I, I like that thing. Oh, uh, that's kind of cool. And the thing that he lets us try on, and the thing that he entrusts us with, and the thing that he loans to us, we actually slip into our pocket and say, well, I think I'm gonna keep that. <laughs> and we say it's ours, right? Because heck, we made that money. It's ours. Or heck, I birthed that baby. That girl's mine. <laughs> or I worked really hard for this position. I had to work and work and work. You have no idea how many hours. I've spent working for that position. That's my position. That's my job. Or uh, I deserve this thing or I own this thing because you know what? I saved for years to have this thing, right? It's easy to see those treasures and want to store them up in our pockets, right? But we need to only be, we need to think of, of being stewards of the things that God gives us. Not owners, but stewards of the things that God entrusts us with. So what we see today in this story is actually a glimpse of where our hearts can actually take us if they're not checked. And through the life of one really evil king, today we're actually going to see the tendencies in our own hearts to rely on ourselves and to rely on the things that God's given us without any regard to God. So let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, come. Would your spirit just come and rest with us today? Lord, we need your rest. We need your, uh, just your ability to come and take off the things that are burdening us right now. And I do, I pray that in Jesus' name, Lord. Remove the things that are just distracting us and burdening us right now in the name of Jesus. Lord, free us up to hear from you today. Open up our hearts, soften our hearts to hear from you and, and to be open to what you would wanna, wanna touch on in our hearts, God. I pray that what I would say would be your words, Lord Jesus. Nothing would leave my mouth that's not of you, God. And I just give you this time and ask for more. We need you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we're currently going through this series called The Kings, right? And we're looking back at Israel's history, early history, to study the lives of their kings in hopes that it'll serve as a mirror as a mirror, and in and, and hopes that we'll actually learn something about ourselves in the process. So today we're looking at the life of King Jehoram in 2 Chronicles 21. So if you want to go ahead and open up your phones or Bibles, and if you need a Bible, there's some on either side of the stage and some in the back as well. Um, we're going to open up to 2 Chronicles 21. And I want to warn you, this guy is one evil dude. Okay, so when Jehoshaphat rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David, and Jehoram his son succeeded him as king. Jehoram's brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, were Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariahhu, Michael, and Shephatiah. All these were sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father had given them many gifts of silver and gold and articles of value as well as fortified cities in Judah but he had given the kingdom of to Jehoram because he was the firstborn son so when Jehoram establishes himself firmly over his father's kingdom he puts all his brothers to death to the sword along with some of the officials of Israel Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. And he followed the ways of the kings of Israel, which were the the evil guys up north, (laughs) and the house of Ahab, and what the house of Ahab had done. For he married a daughter of Ahab, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we see later on even the cities in his kingdom start to actually revolt, Edom and Libna. Because in verse 10 it says, Jehoram had forsaken the Lord, the God of his ancestors, and he had also built up high places on the hills of Judah and had caused the people of Jerusalem to prostitute themselves and had led Judah astray. So this guy is, he's a pretty evil king, and he starts out his reign in a really dramatic fashion. He murders his own brothers, his own brothers, and the top officials in his kingdom just to secure his reign. And instead of taking after his father and his grandfather, which they actually loved and served the Lord, he was said to be more like his father-in-law, Ahab, which if you know anything about Ahab, he was, he was a pretty evil dude too. And he was from the northern kingdom of Israel. And he begins to also replace the worship of God with the, with the worship of idols, and he leads his own people away from God now let's be honest it's evil it's easy it's easy to look at a passage like this or a person like this and go well thank goodness i'm not like him right (laughs) thank goodness but it's also easy to compare ourselves with people that are a lot worse than us right because why it makes us feel pretty good about ourselves we're doing pretty good right But even though we may not relate to Jehoram's actions, right? We we probably have not murdered our brothers, and we probably haven't led a whole group of people astray from God, but we can relate with his heart motives. And by uncovering some of these, we can start to see the ways that we get stuck, the, the ways that we're unaware of these destructive patterns in our own hearts. And we see that Jehoram starts from a place of what, privilege, power, I mean, he's the firstborn son, all this wealth, and he uses it all to serve himself. And what happens in the end is he actually loses all of it. Now, this speaks of a kingdom reality, a kingdom reality, which is the upside-down kingdom, right? And, and think of it like, like this, okay? So like a, a pyramid, Jehoram thinks that success is this way, right? Up. He thinks that to succeed in life, he needs to take control. He needs to seek power and success, right? But what happens in the end? (laughs) It doesn't end very well, right? So the way down is to go up. Pride comes before the fall, right? We all know this. Pride comes before the fall. He elevates himself, and it doesn't end well. Jehoram says, I will ascend and I will be the most high for my sake. And what's interesting is that we see Jehoram has high places in his heart way before there are why, there are, he puts high places on the hills of Judah. High places in his heart. And when we hear these stories of the kings uh, in these books, in the series that we're doing, we constantly read about these so-called high places. What are those? Because at the end of, of each king's rule, it's usually said, and they did tear, tear down the high places, or they didn't tear down the high places. And I'm thinking, what are the high places? And those things are an altar with an object on it, an object of worship. And they were the places where they would do sacrifices to these idols and to these gods. So what would be an idol? What, what is that idol? And what is an idol to us today, right? Because... What we need to know is that an idol is anything that's more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you, right? And to contemporary people and to people in our day and age, when we think of um, idolatry, it's usually like a weird word we don't hear a lot of, and it conjures up pictures of like a primitive people bowing before some kind of statue, right, or, or of, um, you know, the people that have succeeded an American Idol, you know, the, the people that Simon Cowell has crowned, you know, we think of that. Um, there's, the, you know, we, we don't necessarily have these clay figurines in our homes anymore, um, though there are cultures that still do worship, idols. But what we have are temptations that honestly are just as, just as seductive and perhaps more more, uh, hard to detect, right? Uh, They're even more subtle. While traditional idol worship still occurs in some places in the world, internal idol worship within the heart is universal. It's universal. In Ezekiel 14.3, God says about the elders of Israel, these men have set up idols in their hearts. And what God is saying is that human heart, the human heart takes those good things that God's given us and we make them ultimate things, right? Like a successful career or the love, loved one or just love itself or material possessions or our families. We turn these things into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives and that's what we run toward. That's the thing that we think will give us significance, right? That thing will give us security. That thing will give us fulfillment. Now, most people know that you can make a god out of sex and power and money, greed. However, I want to stress this. Anything can be an idol. Anything. And usually it's just the good things. It's the good things that God's given us. And they become our functional trust. What we actually operate in, our functional trust and our functional identity—it's what we actually live out of, if we really looked at it. Now, this happened to me. I remember a time in my life where God showed me that something had become my functional identity or my functional trust, and it was when He asked um, Adam and I to step down from leadership for our small group that we had had in our home for a numerous amount of years and. We really loved these people, and so when I say I had to give them up, I felt like I had to give them up. I felt like God was asking me to move away from leadership, and, and I thought he was calling me to something better. <laughs> I thought he was, he was actually in that time of our lives, we were thinking about doing some church planning, and, and we thought we were going to do something better, and what happened was we didn't end up doing that thing, <laughs> and God just was like, I want you to let this go. And it was really hard for me, not only because I loved these people, uh, but because what I found out was in the process of, you know, splitting our group into two groups and we decided for just a month, Adam and I would go to one of the groups and we just kind of monitor and make sure things were going well, we wanted to transition well. And I remember sitting in one of those groups where I was just attending. Okay, I wasn't leading this group anymore. I had already raised up two other leaders, I was supporting them. And I'm sitting in the group and I said something, made a comment about something, and no one heard me. You know what that did to little old me? (laughs) That pricked my little ego. I just was like, what? No one heard me. No one turned to look at me. No one said anything about what I said. No one even heard me. And I'm just saying like, I didn't realize until that moment, it's gone. This so-called leadership thing, this small group leadership thing that I'm not doing anymore, that wasn't because I was such a great person. That's not because I'm such a great leader. That's because God took the mantle of leadership right off of me, and it was just gone. I'm like, what? And I could tell my influence was gone. I could tell, like, the power of my words wasn't there. It was just incredible. God just took it off. And I'm telling you guys, the next couple years was rough. I just, I I had to do some unpacking. My heart had become attached to this so-called title of leadership, right? And it was so good, so by God's grace, right? By his grace that he shows me that, that he showed me that. Because I was able to step out of that and go, you know what? No, my identity doesn't rest in whether I'm a leader or not, right? But I had been operating out of that. And I I hadn't even seen it until it was gone. Until it was gone. For Jehoram, What he wanted, above all else, might not have been be a smogger bleeder, but it was be secure, right? He wanted to be secure. He wanted his power to be ultimate and at all costs, right? Because he literally was stepping over other things, like his brother's lives, to get at that thing. He wanted it at all costs. It was the ultimate thing for him. And you know, this happens with a lot of sports players I see too, right? We know of sports players on the quest to play, not just good, but like at Hall of Fame level, right? What do they do? They start taking steroids, they start taking drugs, and as a result, their bodies are more broken and, and their reputations are sullied because they've been, they were willing to not just do good, they, they wanted great, and that became the ultimate thing for them. And everything that they were hoping for and put their happiness in and, and their identity in just went to dust, right? How many times has that happened for people who've made that their ultimate ultimate thing? We are all susceptible to idols, and we got to remember this. We are we are <clears throat> idol factories. And I remember hearing that on a little cassette tape that my dad sent me of one of Rich Nathan who leads the Columbus Vineyard, um, would have these little white cassette tapes, and he would send them to me in college. And I remember him saying, and I wrote it down, I'm like, we're idle factories? What does that mean? We're idle factories. But how true is that? Because we are created to worship. We're created for it. We're created for worship. But our tendency is to find earthly things to worship, and God's saying, no, I created that desire, that, that, that desire for worship to be what draws me What draws you back to me? What causes you to worship me? It's meant to draw us closer to our Father. And I think this is one of the reasons why fasting is actually a really practical good thing. Beyond just a spiritual practice, which I think it's a great spiritual practice, good discipline, I think it's actually just a good thing. Um, I think everyone should do it. (laughs) Because what happens when you start to change things? What happens when you start to not do things you get shaken up a little bit right and things come to the surface things come to the surface and anybody here fasted for lent yeah anybody okay so you're like yes i don't have to fast anymore easter's over you know i can eat chocolate or whatever (laughs) whatever it is but for me what the lord had asked me to give up was the things that i was turning to other than him you may, okay, so I'm going to be vulnerable. Um, I was turning to movies and entertainment, and I was turning to sweets. So I took out those things. No TV, no movies, and no chocolate sweets, whatever. And I'm telling you, day one, I'm like, oh, what is going on? It's like withdrawal, right? And you don't realize until you stink and take those things away that they've had a hole on your life that they've actually been mastering you instead of you thinking you're mastering it, right? Oh, idols always come with a cost, right? They always come with a cost. And so it's a really good practice. It shows us, you know, maybe the things that we've just, that good thing we've taken a little bit too far, right? That's not actually good for us. And now if fasting's easy for you, which I don't know, maybe, you know, fasting's not a big problem. Let's look at our lives when we go home. What happens when we go home at the end of a day Our defenses are down, right? Our defenses are down. We get comfortable. These are our people. They know us. And uh, it's kind of like taking the safety off of a gun. (laughs) And you stick it in there and you're like, just inconvenience me. Just disrespect me. And what comes out of me when I'm at home is unlike any other place in my life. Poor Eden and poor Adam, right? (laughs) That's my daughter and my husband. Um, I'm impatient with Eden so much more quickly than I am with anyone else. I'm short with my words, I'm sharp with my words with my husband, and I'm overly sensitive with my husband. And you know what God says? He's like, Heather, those are just symptoms of something going on in your heart because you're actually taking off this, this you know, mask, you're unmasking yourself in front of your family because you feel comfortable, you're, you, these are your people, and what's happening is things are coming up, and you're shocked, oh, that was just a one-time occurrence, I, must, I should not do that again. But those are symptoms right those are symptoms of my heart and what's going on in my heart god is so faithful to show us those symptoms are actually a cause of something plugging up my heart right and he is so faithful to help us uncover what those things are if we let him (laughs) right if we let him Uh, We just went through Easter, right, last week, and uh, years ago, I was at an Ash Wednesday service, which usually kicks off the season of Lent and ends with Easter. I was at an Ash Wednesday service, and I'll never forget this moment because God did just that. He uncovered something that had been going on in my heart, and I was uh, feeling extra introverted, and I decided it was one of those darker services where they dim the lights, and so I just literally sat in the very back row by myself and journaled, and just like, I'm just going to enjoy this time, and had no idea what was coming, <clears throat> and then all of a sudden, this lady walks in, and she's on crutches, and she, she like hobbles in, and a lot of pain, it looks like, and she sits right in front of me, and I'm like, really? Like right in front of me? I'm like having my time with the Lord, you know, and but she sits in front, and immediately the Lord starts talking to me, like compassion just starts. I'm like, this is the Lord, and just compassion for this woman starts coming, and, and I know that's from the Lord and not me. Um, (laughs) And immediately he just speaks to me and he's like, I want you to ask her if she needs help to go forward. Because they were getting ashes and they were getting prayed for, which is common for Ash Wednesday. And, And I'm thinking, you're right. She had so much trouble getting in just to the first, you know, the last row. I mean, I can't imagine her going all the way to the front of the church. And and so I'm like, oh man, are you gonna make me do this? You're gonna make me talk to this. I don't even know this person. And so I get down on my knees and I like, hi, you know, I'm Heather, and she's like, looks at me, and, and I'm like, I just wanted to see if you needed any help, you know, going forward to receive the ashes. And she looks at me and she's like, I do not need your help. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> not the answer I was expecting. Um, and I remember standing up and she's like, looks at me and then looks, looks away. And, I remember standing up and turning, and the moment I turned, the Lord's like, that's you. And when he said it, I knew what he meant. And he said, I didn't ask you to to do that so that you could actually walk her to the front of the church. I asked you to do that so I could show you your heart. And what he showed me in that moment, and boy, did it just... Just really hit me hard. I literally just beelined it for the bathroom, and I think I bawled the rest of the service. Um, but he showed me my heart—that really how I had been living in that time of my life. Was I was on crutches and I was painfully, you know, like hobbling along. And I'm like, I got this, God, I got this. I'm good. I don't need your help. I got this, you know. And I'm painfully walking along, and and he's like, Heather, this self-reliance has become an idol in your life. You think you have to do this on your own strength, don't you? It's like this is about a relationship with me. Get over yourself. This is not about you and what you offer me or how you can do this on your own. And I just, he just, by his grace, showed me this, this part of my life that I'd been operating in and didn't even didn't even see it. For Jehoram, he got a warning too, just like I did. But For Jehoram, it didn't deter him at all. Even sending him, God sent him a letter from the prophet Elijah, warning him and telling him that everything he staked his life on, he's gonna lose. He's gonna lose. And because he's abandoned the Lord, right? But there is no response, no repentance, no plea for mercy from Jehoram at all. It's business as usual as though that What God said had no merit or worth in his life at all. So what inevitably happens in Jehoram's life is far from increasing the extent of his power, he actually sees it completely diminish and lose it all. In 2 Chronicles 21, 16 through 20, um, I don't have it on the slide, but I'm just going to read it here. Uh, The Lord aroused against Jehoram the hostility of the Philistines and of the Arabs who were living near the Cushites. They attacked Judah, invading it and carrying off all the goods found in the king's palace together with his sons and with his wives. Not a son was left to him except for Haziah, the youngest. And after this, the Lord afflicted Jehoram with an incurable disease of the bowels. In, course of, in the course of time, at the end of the second year, his bowels came out because of the disease and he died in great pain. Okay. And his people made no funeral fire for him at all for his honor. And they had, for, they had as they had for, their, for his predecessors. And Jehoram was 32, year, 32 years old when he reigned? Yeah, 32 years old when he became king and he reigned for eight years. And he passed away to no one's regret. Literally says that, to no one's regret. And was buried in the city of David, but was not buried in the tombs with his fathers, with the kings. Because he abandons God and because he rejects God's warning, this is what happens to Jehoram in the end. He completely loses his country. It's completely ransacked, right? He loses his entire family, except for one son and one wife. And he loses all his wealth. He's struck with a severe and terminal disease, which causes humiliation, literally, and after two years of suffering and still not repenting. I mean, guys, God gave him two years of pain and suffering, and he still doesn't turn back. He dies in great pain and agony, and although he was a king, there was no fire in his honor. He wasn't buried in the royal cemetery, and and it actually says no one was sorry he died. He passed away to no one's regret. Talk about not ending well. right? So what do we do with the idols in our hearts? Because what we need to realize is we need a substitute. We need a substitute. That's why fasting is such a cool thing. Because what we do is we substitute that space with God, right? Because we're created to worship. We're created to worship, and it's meant to draw us into the presence of God. By the grace of God, through Jesus, He is not only our model, but he's our savior, our enabling grace to change our idol-making hearts. And when our hearts are captured by his heart, his heart, things begin to actually change in ours. As we begin to love him more and trust him more and obey him more, right? Intimacy, dependency, obedience. And if we look at the life of Christ in contrast to Jehoram's life, we see another principle of the upside-down kingdom, right? We see it go like this, okay? An inverted V. Jesus, the way up is to go down. The way to end well is to die to ourselves, right? And this picture is, is beautifully portrayed in Philippians 2, 3 through 11. You know, Jesus is saying, "I will descend and go low for their sakes." So in Philippians two, it says, "Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit; rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others." In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who, being in the very nature of God, didn't consider himself didn't consider equality With God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Jesus is our model. You want to look at the upside-down kingdom? Look at Jesus. Look at the way he lived his life. Look at the way he ended. Glory, total glory. All during Jesus' ministry though, what were the disciples doing? They're like, so when are you gonna take over, right? When are you gonna come to power? When are you gonna take over and kick the, the Romans out, right? When are you gonna start networking and raising money? When are you gonna run for office, right? When's your first primary? Instead, Jesus served humbly. He associated with people that were sick and that were sinners The widows and the poor. He put others above himself. And even in the end, he was tortured and killed. And when he rose from the dead, who did he show up to first? The women, right? Some of the lowliest. Jesus was glorified not through strength, but through surrender, through service, through sacrifice and death. This is our model. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Jesus shows us another way, right? The upside down kingdom. By giving up his power and serving, he becomes the most influential man that has ever lived on the face of this earth. The most influential man. Now, he's not only our model, but he's also our savior. And this is what's so sweet about Jesus. When he becomes our rock, when he's the one that is our savior that we turn to, we begin to actually let go of those those idols, right? We let go of those false securities in our lives because he becomes the thing that we really can build our lives on, much more secure than anything that could ever be taken away. He doesn't leave us to figure this out on our own, though, either, right? We're not looking into that mirror all by ourselves. He puts his arm around us and he says, let's look together. Because trust me, you won't be able to figure this out without me, <laughs> right? So we say, God, why am I so angry? Why am I so worried? Why am I so depressed? What, what is this thing that's driving me, God? And he, he shows us he comes alongside of us and he shows us and he walks with us there and he provides us with good counselors and good friends who've been there, who know the scenery, who know like, what that looks like and how to navigate it. But he doesn't go there without what? Without our permission, right? He doesn't go there without our permission. Oh, he'll knock, right? He'll knock. He'll say, will you let me in? He'll knock, but it is so up to us whether or not we, lo- we let him in, right? Will we open up the door. So if we look at this picture of a house, and we've used this analogy before. But if you look at your life as a house, and Jesus comes knocking, um, you open the door and you're like, "Hey, come on in, right? And look at my nicely decorated living room and my, you know, beautiful TV. And here, have a seat on my leather couch. Like, I- I'm doing pretty good, aren't I, Jesus? Right? And what does he do? He goes straight down to the basement. And you're like, whoa, 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 where are you going? Where are you going? Come back here. Come back. And you start to deflect and you, you try to like stop him, right? Because what is he doing? He's going to that room in the back of your basement that's dark, that has cobwebs, <laughs> that has a strange smell, you know, and, and there's this door and he goes, knock, knock, will you let me in? Will you let me in? And we're thinking, oh, boy, it's been a long time since I've been there, and I probably need to clean up in there first before I let you in. I mean, I mean, it's pretty stinky. I mean, who knows what's died in there, really? I mean, literally. Um, uh, so please, just give me a second, and then then I'll let you in. You know, let me clean up a little bit. And, and he's saying, no, like, I want to go there with you. I want to go there with you. And, and my mom said something recently to me about um, my brother, and she said, you know, hun, you will never understand... <sighs> hurt and loss and pain until you have a kid and they go through it because she said watching my my brother go through some hard stuff has been just really hard on my mom and it made me think about how Jesus views those areas of our life right do you know how much it hurts him how much how much he wants to take away the crap that's in that room because he knows it's hurting us He's not coming in going, okay, let's see what's wrong behind this door. I'm going to punish you for whatever's behind this door. That's not our father. He's a good, good father, right? A good, good father. And he hurts for us even more than we hurt for ourselves, for the things that we're carrying around in our hearts that are, that are causing just pain and destruction and hurt in our relationships. And he's saying, I don't want this for you. I want freedom for you let me in will you trust me will you trust me that i'm not going to strike you with a bolt of lightning i'm actually going to come around you and say look at my eyes look at my eyes do you see do you see judgment or do you see love and acceptance unconditional love and acceptance and i'm i'm just saying like until you let him into those areas do you really know his unconditional love because you can say, well, yeah, I know God's unconditional love, but until you've let him into those parts of your life that you're not comfortable with letting him into, where well, you're not sure, where honestly, where shame has chained your chin to the ground and you can't look in his eyes, right? Until you look in his eyes, will you ever be truly convinced that what you've done, what you've done doesn't hold you back from the presence of God? That, the, that when Jesus looks at you, right, he sees you pure white, Because of what he did. Not because of what we did. Because of what he did. He is our enabling grace. There's no way we can clean up that room without him. And for it to stay clean, right? He is our enabling grace. And as we die to our tendency to want to self-protect and die to our tendency to let shame shut us down, we die to the tendency to, to actually not forgive those who've wronged us, and we actually start celebrating other people's promotions, or we give away what's ours freely, because we realize it's not ours anyways. And we start stopping to like, defend ourselves every time someone says something that we don't agree with or that's not, not true to who we are, and we start letting go of these things, and, and we die to ourselves, we start to see our, ch- our hearts change. We say, God, I didn't know I could do that. He's like, you couldn't. That's, that's why I'm here. I'm giving you what you need, to do the things I'm asking you to do. We see our lives and the things in our lives as how they're really, truly meant to be. Instead of ownership, it becomes stewardship, right? Instead of ownership, our hearts become focused on this grateful stewardship. We actually become humbled by the things that we get. Well, like, you're going to give me that house? Really? Like, that's a nice house. Like, really? Like, I get to live in this house? This is awesome. You know, we've we've done this. We've actually had multiple people live with us because we don't feel like it's our house. We're like, it's not ours. If you want to come in, you come on in. If you need a place, you come on in. And we've loved how that's transformed our thinking of this is not mine, this is God's. God, how do you want to use this house? How do you want to use this house? But it's when we admit, right, that we need him and we let him in to those areas of our, of our heart to, to shine his light on those idols that have been taken up space that he wants to fill, when we see for ourselves his unconditional love, there's such a, such a different sense of security and a different sense of, of love when, when we start accepting that grace from God because it's so unmerited, it's so undeserved, it's so all-sustaining for everything we need and we find that those insecurities are gone, that that lust for power or that lust for money is just cut at the root. The way up is to go down, and the way down is to go up. So I want to end today uh, with a, a song that came to mind, and why don't we go ahead and stand? Um, and I'm not going to sing it. Somebody challenged me last night, you should sing it, Heather. I'm like, I'm not singing it. There's no way I'm doing that. <laughs> i love jesus but there's no way i'm doing that (laughs) Uh, but when we were going we we came to the good friday service about a week ago and they sang uh this verse um to the hymn the wondrous cross when i survey the wondrous cross and it came back to mind when i was thinking about ministry time today and i said god what do you want to do you know how do you want us to to approach you today and and be open to you today. And, and the words of this, this verse came back, um, and I just want to read it. Were the whole realm of nature mine? So I get everything I've ever wanted. I get all the things in the world. I have everything to myself. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small. Love so amazing and so divine so other than us we can't even comprehend the kind of love that god has for us demands my soul my life and my all and when he brought those words back to mind i heard him just saying this is an invitation today you need to be recaptured by the love of god by your by the undeserved unmerited grace of god because when we remember, when we, when we get, get the, the, the sense, that refreshing sense of what you've done for me, there's nothing I could do to repay what you've done for me. When we're, when we're reminded, reminded of how grateful we should be for what God has done, it's, it actually starts to deplace, displace the idols in our hearts immediately because we see God. Lord, you deserve my my focus. You deserve everything I have, and so that's that's what I want to invite us to do today. And Sarah's going to lead us in one last worship song. and And if you want to come forward and just get a refreshing, a taste of the love of God, say, God, remind me of what you've done. Make it real. Make it make it tangible. And did you know that this is possible? Like physiologically it's possible to actually sense the peace of God, to sense the love of God in a way that just settles your soul and reminds us of how grateful we should be for what God has done for us. So if that's you, I would love to have you come forward and and just um, receive prayer. And there was one other word I wanted to highlight as well. Um, This one just came kind of out of nowhere, but I I felt like it was relevant. that some of us have really high standards and expectations that we place on those around us. Really high expectations and standards, especially on the people closest to us. And it's actually causing friction in our relationships, and it's actually causing people to step away from us, to kind of remove themselves from, from our lives, because we have such high expectations of them. And the Lord was just saying, actually, that's an idol. And you need to give up your ideals, which are idols, right? Same root word. Give up some of those ideals. Give them to me. Um, And what I think he wants to say is, I'm God. They're not. (laughs) They can never fill what only I can fill. And so if that resonates with you, if you're experiencing tension in some of your relationships because you realize, you know what, I just have had really high expectations for that person, would you come forward and and just make some exchanges with the Lord today? Just say, God, I'm going to lay that down. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn to you in those times where I'm expecting this from them. I'm gonna turn to you. So um, let's, let's just worship the Lord in this last song and then I'll come back up and uh, lead us in a closing word of prayer, okay? Come forward. Any of those words that you feel like the Lord is just addressing, like, Lord, I, I need to, to be reminded and refreshed um, of your love for me and what you've done for me. Or, or you feel like there's friction in some of your relationships. Um, Come on forward, we'd love to pray for you. We'd love to pray for you. So guys with guys and girls with girls, um, if we could have um, some women come up and pray, that'd be wonderful. We're just gonna have, a, have someone come and put their, their hand on your shoulder and just bless what God's doing and pray for you. So come on forward. Anyone that would love, love prayer today. Can we have one more? Um, Guy praying. Overwhelmed by the weight of
1: your sin, Jesus is calling. <clears throat> Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh come to the altar the Father's arms are open wide Forgiveness Can we have some more women's prayers and uh,
0: some more the guy precious prayers precious
1: blood of Jesus Christ. Leave behind your regrets and mistakes Come today, there's no reason to wait Jesus is calling Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy From the ashes a new life is born. Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with
0: those of you getting prayer just continue to do so we're going to end in a word of prayer heavenly father would you just come and and meet us refresh our perspectives lord of how much you have done for us god would you just uh, give us a taste again of that that living water that only you supply god i don't even think we know how thirsty we are for you God, would you, would you come, would you meet us this week, would you remind us of your presence and, and your involvement in our lives by knocking on our, on our hearts, God? Would you knock and, and would we let you in? Would you give us the grace to say, okay, God, we, we want you to come in, God. We want you to have your way. Heavenly, Lord, Heavenly Father, we, just, we, we pray blessing over everyone here in the name of Jesus. I pray you would just walk arm in arm with everyone that leaves this room today And we just thank you, God, for your goodness and your mercy and your grace in our lives. In the name of Jesus, amen.